0: I'm always being told I'm aggressive sometimes, and I always say, no, I'm assertive. And for women, it's especially hard because it's really hard for us to advocate for ourselves. And I always think about those times when people are not encouraged to go follow their dreams. Like, imagine there's so much creativity in this world that we could have had. Failures and rejections, I feel like they're so important for your growth. Just imagine a world where you were only successful. I think that would just be so boring. Women tend to get a lot of mentors who are not sponsors, and men tend to get a lot of mentors who are sponsors. My parents never forced us to do anything that we didn't quite like. They did force me into cricket. They wanted me to play cricket because my older sister uh, played cricket for the country.
1: Welcome to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast, where we talk to computer scientists who immigrated from their home countries for study, or for work, or for other reasons. In these oral history interviews, you will find established and renowned computer scientists from across academia and industry, narrating their experiences of immigrating from where they grew up to a completely different land, often the US. My name is Indi Gupta, and I'm your host. Welcome back. This is episode 26. And it's the third episode in this show's segment on India. The last two weeks, you heard six IITNs talk about their journeys, all computer science, bachelor's degree holders, and all male. This week, we talked to a woman technologist who grew up in India and then immigrated to the US. She also immigrated into computer science as her first bachelor's and master's degrees were in instrumentation engineering and chemistry. In fact, her parents wanted her to become a cricketer. We'll talk about that. Oh, and in 2018, she also wrote a book titled Nevertheless, She Persisted, in which she interviewed top women technologists in the US and Silicon Valley. That book is a testament to the tenacity and determination of women to succeed in STEM and tech at the highest levels. The book is available wherever you buy your books. My conversation with Pratima has two parts, both in this episode. In the first part, we discuss her immigration journey from India to the US, and her growth in the US tech sector, and from outside computer science into it. In the second part of the episode, we discuss some of the most important themes from her book. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. And you can find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. I'm delighted to welcome Pratima Rao Gluckman to the Immigrant Computer Scientist's podcast. Pratima Rao Gluckman is a senior Engineering Manager at Rivian, the electric vehicle company. You may have seen Rivian SUVs on the roads in the U.S. Pratima's background in chronological order is the following. She grew up in Hyderabad, uh, which is a city in the southern part of India, uh, during the 1980s and 90s and a sliver of the 1970s. In 1992, she went to the Birla Institute of Technology and Science, also known as BITS, in Pilani, Bits Pilani where she did her bachelor's in instrumentation engineering and her master's in chemistry. She graduated in 1997. In 1998, Pratima moved to the U.S. to start her master's in computer science at the University of Texas, Arlington. After graduating in 1999 with her master's, uh, since then, she's had the experience of working in both small firms as well as large companies for both short periods of time as well as durations more than a decade Chronologically, from 99, when she finished her masters, to 2003, she worked in uh, Sabre Airline, IXOS, SAP, and Telme until 2003. From 2003 through 2006, Pratima was lead engineer at Marlabs. From 2006 to 2008, she worked at Adomo and Cast Iron. And then, in 2008, Pratima joined VMware, where she started as a senior member of technical staff, and left as senior engineering manager, blockchain engineering, in 2020. So. Uh, over 12 years in VMware. In 2020 uh, and until 2021, Pratima was a senior engineering manager at LinkedIn for a year and a half. And then since 2021, Pratima has been at Rivian. Apart from her work, Pratima is also involved in a lot of outreach work. She is the co-founder of Innovation for Youth, an organization that is aimed at bringing more girls into STEM disciplines. Pratima hosts her own podcast titled Getting to 50-50, Conversations to Bridge the Gender Gap, where she interviews women technologists, and she's appeared on other podcasts as well. And Dear to My Heart is the book that Pratima Rao published in 2018, titled Nevertheless, She Persisted, True Stories of Women Leaders in Tech. That book features oral history interviews with several leading women technologists in the IT field. That book is formative to the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast in the sense that it has been the source of many questions that I ask my guests on this podcast, so our listeners, may enjoy this conversation for other reasons beyond Pratima's story itself. We'll chat a bit about the book and Pratima's experiences around that as well. Welcome, Pratima, to the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast, and thank you for being willing to share your journey and your experiences with us.
0: Thank you, Indranil. I'm so honored to be on your podcast.
1: So you grew up in Hyderabad uh, in India in the 1980s and 90s and a sliver of the 1970s. Uh, was there a defining experience that got you interested in math and science at a young age when you were in school, um, high, early school, middle school, or was the interest in STEM organic for you as you grew older?
0: It started at school very much, and it started with my teachers. I had a, an amazing math teacher who encouraged me all through uh, my schooling years, which I thought was very, very helpful, just having someone who believed in me. And uh, she would actually single me out in class, which was actually pretty, you know, nice for me in terms of um, just my confidence. And I think that really helped. And because I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s, you know, we didn't have, uh, or we just had the burgeoning of emails and things Mm -hmm. like that at that point. Um, And we had a computer science course and it was in basic, basic language, Mm -hmm. basic programming and i took that course and i actually fell in love with programming at that point but because we didn't have computer science at that point we didn't you know we didn't have computers we didn't have a lot of technology i think it was kind of picking up in the united states but pretty slowly wasn't there so i didn't quite define how my career was going to be in the computer science space it was other fields that um seemed attractive at that point based on what was available
1: was the basic programming was that in school or was that at home school yes mm.
0: so i went to a private school in india i mean like most kids go to private schools mm. um i went to the school called saint anne's high school in uh, you, you talked about hyderabad but in a in a twin city called Secunderabad, that's where i was mm. born and raised and i went to that school and i was you know growing up Privileged in some sense, going to a private school and a school like St. Anne's High School, where I had a lot of role models. Um, In fact, the reason I went to Bitspalani was also I had uh, one of my seniors in school who went to Bitspalani. And that's how I heard about Bitspalani. Mm -hmm. And my math uh, interest was from my childhood. And one thing that my parents did, which was, I don't think that was odd. I think that was, maybe that's what Indian families did, was... Um, I always got private tutoring in math. Mm. So all through school, I had private tutoring in math. And I loved my math professor who who taught us. And uh, he lived in our neighborhood. He was one of the, he was this old grumpy, gruffy guy in the neighborhood who pretty much taught all the neighborhood kids math. Mm. And I remember just hanging out with him and spending hours just doing math. And I Mm. just loved it. It was something that, I liked um, fa- numbers was always a fascination for me. Even today, like I think about some of the cool things you can do <laughs> with numbers and yeah. how you could add them very quickly, <laughs> yeah. you know, like a string of numbers, you just delete all the nines and you can actually get the sum of those numbers. It's actually weird. It's like how, how that works and, you know, everything behind that. Um, and I see that in my daughter right now. I, um, she does Russian school of math over the weekends, and I see how she's kind of like me when it comes to math, but like very focused, loves it. She gets a high on math, and I think that's kind of how I was as a child.
1: The math tutoring you mentioned, the private tutoring, uh, was that um, a decision from your parents, or was that because you wanted to learn more about math that you thought that was something that you should do?
0: I can't remember the details, but I kind of stuck through with it. My parents never forced us to do anything that we didn't quite like. They did force me into cricket. Um, they wanted me to play cricket because my older sister uh, played cricket for the country. Oh, okay. And, uh, so she started playing cricket at a very early age. Her name is Purnima Rao. And she played cricket for India. She won a World Cup for India. And it, this was the time when Diane Edulji and all these women cricketers were kind of <laughs> getting popular. And you would never think... Um, growing up like women's cricket was a big thing and she struggled. It took her a very long time. Um, I think the cricket captain right now is Mitali Raj. I grew up with her. I mean, she grew up with my sister. She was coached by the same guy who coached my sister. And I know Mitali's done so well, but my sister didn't do as well because, you know, 40, 50 years ago, cricket wasn't a big thing for women But my family encouraged her, she wanted to play cricket. They encouraged her. Um, They encouraged me to get into math and science and become an engineer. So we weren't forced into things. I mean, I was forced to play cricket. I was at some point and and I didn't want to do it and I could walk away from it. I wasn't shamed for not wanting to play cricket. It was never my thing.
1: (laughs) That's so interesting of course we're talking of India in the 1970s and 80s where since then India has been crazy about cricket especially men's cricket yes. uh, as you mentioned women's cricket is always you know in the background and the Indian women's cricket team has been doing very well the last few years you mentioned a couple of players uh, and of course your sister was very interested in cricket so it sounds like your your family had uh, some expectation from you that you might also be successful in cricket and
0: I I think it was sports and education was important for my family, like two things. My grandfather was a tennis player, and I think that was something that they kind of wanted. Um, so even my older sister, when she decided to go into cricket, they did tell her she needed to get a master's degree. So that was the... That was kind of a given, you know. You can be a musician, you could be whatever you wanted to be, but they expected a level of degrees that you had to get. Mm -hmm. And so, my sister got a master's degree. My older sister, though she played cricket, you know, she's she's you know she's got a master's degree. Uh, With me, it was more, you know, I prefer tennis over cricket, so they encouraged me to play tennis. So I played a lot of tennis and there were times when I actually wanted to professionally play tennis. I really loved the game. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did choose the path of going into more just, I don't know. I think it was more, you know, math science. And I think if they had cricket in Bitspalani, whether I went, I mean, not cricket like tennis, you know, they had tennis courts and I definitely would have probably continued playing the game, but they didn't, you know, in Hyderabad, you know, you could go to the club, country club and you could play tennis Um, and so I had that until I went to college and then I stopped playing tennis Mm -hmm. because it was not available.
1: Mm. So moving forward in your timeline as you're in high school um, of course Hyderabad in in India is a very education conscious city with um, students in their 11th and 12th grade preparing for these entrance exams whether it's the IIT entrance exam at the national level or other entrance exams at the national level or um, what uh, we call as MSET, which is the engineering and medical entrance exam at the state level in then Andhra Pradesh, which is the state that Hyderabad was then in. Did, were you and your parents thinking of that for you, given your interest in science and math of those exams? Do you prepare for those or how was your um, lead up to 11th and 12th?
0: Not really, I actually wanted to go to Bitpilani, so I was pretty clear because i had I had a friend, not a friend a senior who went to Bitpilani, and she yeah. was probably three years older than I was um, and she was head girl of the school, and she was this this perfect role model that I you know aspire to be, which was kind of odd um, and she went to Btpilani, and so I think early on I said that 's where I want to go. Mm. You know at that age you don't have a lot of mentoring you don't have people who can yeah. give you a lot of options and say there's so many other things you can do right like yeah. it was just something that stuck with me and i said okay you know what i'll just go to bits Pilani. but i didn't know how competitive it was going to be yeah. it's not easy to get into that school i mean right. i think it's gotten worse now i think the time that i went probably was so much much easier but you had to, I think, normalize. You had to be get like 98% and above to get into that school.
1: In your high school points exam, right? Yeah.
0: yeah. So what I did was I remember my 11th and 12th. Those were like the hardest years because I remember just studying for 18 hours a day. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, one of those things where I'd get on a bus. I'd, you know, travel on a bus to college, spend all day trying to study for, you know, um, all those exams that you had to pass to get into, you know, wherever you want to get to, right? Like everyone in my class had some goal to do something, <laughs> like oh. either pass, you, like you said, i exam or go to IIT and people had these different goals. Um, and the school I went to was actually, it was called Gautami School. And actually, I don't even know why I went to that College, but it was one of those colleges where they just prepared you to get to these, to kind of reach your goal, whatever your goal was, IIT or MSET or, yeah. you know. Um, So it was like 18 hours a day. I remember taking a bus, you know, waking up early in the morning, you get on a bus, you um, study all day. And then I did after school tutoring and I'd get home by 9, 10. Mm you know, have, have dinner and go to bed. And it was the same thing the next day. So it was like two years of just doing that. And, and
1: all of your friends were doing this too, right? And like classmates as well.
0: Yes, my classmates were doing the same thing. Yes. And I, the college that I went to, I think the, the people in my class were like state toppers. In fact, the girl mm-hmm. who topped Andhra Pradesh State um, was in, went to Pilani with me.
1: Mm. I see, yeah.
0: Um, I don't know where I landed. I don't think I was high up there.
1: Did you notice a diversity problem in in Gautami and in the 11th and 12th as, as students were preparing for these exams? Did you notice that there were more boys than girls or the other way around?
0: Not in India, no. Mm. So, I mean, the, the girl who topped class, I mean, she was female, right? Like she was number one on, in the state. Um, I mean, there were... Boys, but I've never felt like there were more boys than girls. Even in Pilani, it didn't feel that way. Though the ratio was eleven is to one or something. Hmm. I mean, there was a joke that you know, if you were a female in Pilani, you could date eleven boys at the same time because <laughs> that was the ratio, right? Um, but I never felt um, like they were smarter than us. Hmm. hmm. I, I felt like we were smarter than them because we were, you know, in terms of education, we were doing much better than they were, right? Like in terms of our grades and, you know, a lot of um, things, it felt like like the girls were faring much better. Maybe Pilani was a little bit more different in the sense that I felt like the girls had to study a lot to get to get a 10 point, whereas the boys would, you know just kind of hang around, chill, do nothing. And then they would, they would get the same grades, right? Like they would get all A's and make a 10 point. Um, so there were people like that on campus who were like these crazy, brilliant people who just would really not study or go to class. Like Bitspilani didn't have, um, you you didn't have to attend classes, you know, like you, hmm. there wasn't a required attendance needed. So there were students who literally didn't do anything, but ended up getting good grades Um, but I always felt like the women were much more hard, well, like we're just hardworking and, you know, uh, felt like I didn't see any difference in gender. Hmm.
1: You said something very interesting, which is that as women, you felt that you needed to work uh, much harder than the, than the men, than the boys. Uh, Can you say a bit more about that?
0: Like if we had to, you know, get a certain grade or something, it just felt like we were much more studious, you know? much more focused on our work and and I see that with my kids too. Like my twin boy girl. Like I feel like my my daughter is much more organized, much more studious, and she'll she has to put in a lot more work. And then I'll see that my son will play video games and is very distracted, very disorganized. And you know, he'll he'll finish his homework too. He takes a little longer for sure. I think she's much more um she understands and she gets the concepts and he just does it without like wanting to learn or understand it's just like i just have to do it because mom's asking me to do it right Mm -hmm. so i see there's that difference in them the way they approach problem solving so i've seen that i feel like i've seen that on campus too and um even when i did my master's i felt like i was like the bookworm studied a lot and the guys that I was friends with would just, you know, drink and party and always knock on my door and say, oh, do you want to get a drink? And I'll be like, are you crazy? We have an exam tomorrow. Like, what what are you doing? Kind of thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> felt like there was much more seriousness to the way I went through school. Uh, and I'm not saying like everyone was like that. It was just the, the circle I was in.
1: You're listening to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast. This is an interview with Pratima Rao Gluckman, Senior Engineering Manager at Rivian, an immigrant from India and immigrant from outside computer science. Moving forward in your timeline, in Bitspilani, uh, you did your bachelor's in instrumentation engineering and your master's in chemistry. Those are very, quite different one is engineering, the other is pure science. C- can you say a little bit about your choice of those disciplines?
0: Yes. So I definitely liked chemistry um, and physics was not my thing at all. Mm-hmm. And when you had to apply to a BITS Pilani, there were two things that I wanted. I wanted either computer science or chemistry. And because I didn't get the grade, you know, I think to get computer science, I probably needed like a 99.99% or something. And I came in at 98 or something like that so I didn't make computer science there's there's a preference you have to choose and so I ended up getting chemistry and it was it turned out to be a five-year degree and the first year on campus was very tough for me when I went to Pilani because Mm. I think what happens um, is that when you put so much pressure on yourself through school yeah and you um, finally make it to where you wanted to get to. Like my destination was Pilani, right? And you make it to that destination, and you know you you have this belief that you're like the smartest child in your village or your neighborhood, and then you go to this other place where there are people who are infinitely smarter than you are, right? Um, I think that causes this real disconnect in your head and it makes you feel like you're not good enough, right? So I think I went through that the first year on campus. It was just, It was a very depressing time for me because um, coming from like Hyderabad and being like some of the smartest kids, you go to Pilani and then you're like, oh my God, I'm not the smartest kid anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're 17, you don't know how to handle those feelings. And it wasn't something that you could talk to people with... Like, you know, I couldn't have a conversation about that with my mom because my mom thought I was the smartest kid, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, So the first year was hard. And what happens in in schools like Pilani is the first year is where you get evaluated and you have to get a certain GPA to get into computer science or mm. something of your choice. And um, and I did not, I, I don't think I fared well in my, I think I got like a seven point or something. Mm. And so I didn't end up getting computer science, which, again, was a disappointment for me. Um, and so instrumentation was was something that I was also interested in because of some courses that I took. Um, and so that was, you know, of all the programs that were there, it sounded, seemed like the the second best to me.
1: Yeah. And you must have also been quite homesick, right? Because Pilani is in the northern part of India, Hyderabad, southern part, quite far from each other. Yes. Uh- you have to take a train and then a bus and then maybe a car and all kinds of people
0: It's a trek to get there. And also the weather. Um, mm. I'm not normally a person who likes to be in the cold. I don't do <laughs> well in the cold. So imagine going living in a desert, you yeah. know, <laughs> where it gets really cold and it gets really hot and it's this weird temperatures that, um, yeah. And it's also you get homesick. Really homesick.
1: Yeah, yeah. And Pilani is in Rajasthan, which is one of the desert states in India. Um, gets very hot in the summer and then very cold in winters.
0: Yes. And then we didn't have phones. So it wasn't like, you know, we had cell phones that you could easily contact family. I can't imagine how I went through five years of school.
1: <laughs> Did you have a programming experience during your time at Bits Pilani?
0: Yes. In my... Third or fourth year, we started getting into, like, there was Java and C++. So I took those courses.
1: As you're nearing the end of your years at Bitspilani and you're starting to think of your next steps in your career, what options were you considering at that point?
0: So we had campus interviews. <laughs> a lot of the campus interviews that I went through really weren't specifically targeted to my education. Um, it seemed like you know companies like Infosys and all those hot companies on, that were coming to campus at that time um, would really interview you on things that were so irrelevant. Like, like, like I had a question which um, in one of my interviews which said, sell me a pen. and i'm like seriously (laughs) you're not going to ask me like anything you know um that was relevant to what i was doing in on campus um so i was very uh, actually and i'm the kind of the person that i kind of get you know i got very disillusioned with the whole interview process and i was like this doesn't make any sense but I knew a lot of my friends were, you know, really working hard on getting some of these, getting through some of these interviews and like preparing mm-hmm. for questions like that, which didn't quite make sense to me. And I think it was also the Microsoft era where the puzzles were like a big thing, you know, all right. All right. just so um, just they just don't make sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I walked away from it all and I said, I'm not going to get a camp interview a job on campus. Um, and I went home. And I tried out very different things when I was back home um, in terms of what I wanted to do. So I spent a lot of time really thinking about what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And there was this constant theme of computer science, you know, though I was not able to get um, that degree at Pilani, there was this constant theme of just going back to Mm -hmm. doing something with programming and computer science and, Uh, The unfortunate thing is because I didn't get a bachelor's degree in computer science, there were a lot of basic things like algorithms and data structures, you know, like that core concepts, like, you know, it wasn't like I fundamentally took a course in that. So it was only in my master's that I actually did like databases and, you know, algorithms, data structures. And so I think the love for it really um, came about during that time. And I wish I had that sooner and earlier. Mm -hmm. In my career.
1: So, after you graduated from BITS Pilani, uh, as you mentioned, you went back and essentially you spent some time thinking about your next steps?
0: Yeah, I took my GRE, right? Yes.
1: And so, when you applied for a master's in computer science, did you feel there was an issue with the fact that you didn't have a computer science background in terms of how your application was being evaluated?
0: No, not really. It didn't mm-hmm. seem that that was problematic. But also coming to the United States was something where I I just wanted to go to school in Texas because my sister was in Texas. I see. So I didn't apply to any schools. I just applied to UT Arlington because mm-hmm. my sister was in Fort Worth. Yes. Choices were very simple.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. How did your parents react to that?
0: My parents, I think, were happy to get me out of the house <laughs> after six months of just hanging out and doing nothing um, because they were like... I think for them in their minds they couldn't quite rationalize why I wasn't um trying to go get a job like just like you know everyone else um you know like my batchmates right like they were working at Infosys and actually Infosys is the only company that comes to mind but you know TCS and all these Tata companies okay. in India so I think my family didn't quite like understand because they thought oh she's going to graduate from this really good university she's going to get this job and I think they just thought that there was going to be this great sequence to the way things were going to happen and they didn't so they were a bit surprised by that my parents my parents have always been very flexible it's always been like do what you think is right for you they all they never told me what to do it was more me telling them how I wanted my life to be you know
1: so after you moved to the U.S. in 98, uh, that was to start your master's. What would you say was the hardest thing to adapt to here in the U.S.?
0: You know, I applied to UT Arlington and I um, landed here. I was uh, I started um, in January of 1998. I didn't, I came here without, um, you know, I came here like I didn't have a scholarship when I came first. Mm and we you know I took a loan from my family from you know family from a bank I can't even remember and I knew I had to pay them back and so I came on campus.
1: It's quite a bit of money.
0: It's quite a bit of money yes um, and a lot of my batch mates there were all these new people that I was meeting on campus and they said hey you came mid-semester so you really can get a scholarship. The computer science departments aren't giving people scholarships and so I I was very determined to get it. And I was like, okay, if computer science is not going to give it to me, I'll just knock on every department on campus. And I ended up actually getting a scholarship in the biomedical department. Um, There Mm -hmm. was this professor who was doing pretty interesting research uh, on the silicon retina. So this Mm -hmm. was for blind people to be able to see. Mm -hmm. And my instrumentation background really mattered. Mm -hmm. And so I got a scholarship all through. And I think that eased a lot of the pain. Mm -hmm during that time but the hardest thing was like just trying to find my feet you know make sure I was I had that scholarship to get me through school and adapting to it wasn't like culture I think it was more more I, I first thing was the weather I don't think I really like Texas weather I, <laughs> I I I know this about myself I don't thrive really well in cold areas and I've got many stories yeah. uh, around that um, that was one thing I think Texas was that I had a lot of support in terms of friends. So I think that was helpful.
1: You mentioned your sister was also nearby.
0: She was nearby. And so it was a very conscious choice of surrounding myself with people I knew and had that support structure.
1: Yeah. Um, When in your life or career did you start to become aware of the gender disparity in STEM disciplines in general?
0: (laughs) It's actually funny. In 2016, right before I wrote my book, Mm. never... Never experienced it back mm-hmm. in, back in India, I mean, my sister played a man's game, right she played cricket yeah. like how how can you when you're born and raised that way how how do you recognize that like how does your mind even comprehend that there's something like that you know yeah
2: yeah
1: yeah the the gender fluidity of sports and also engineering and medicine study in India. Um, I've heard this from others as well, that the first time they become aware of gender disparities is after coming to the U.S.
0: Yes, and I think for me, even after coming to the U.S., it took me a long time. You know, 2008 to 2016 is a very, very long time.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as you're finishing your master's, uh, did you consider returning to India or was staying in the U.S. the only option that you thought of?
0: I think staying in the US was the only option I thought of at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And did you think of uh because you had a you had you had some experience with the research project, the retina project that you mentioned. Did you think of research as an option or were you thinking, nah, it's gonna be industry and that's the obvious thing?
0: No, it was an option. <laughs> I think at some point PhD was there on the mm-hmm. cards. Mm-hmm.
1: You
0: were know, getting a PhD. Um, I think later it was an MBA. So there was always this notion of trying to get another degree. By then yeah. I'd already had three degrees. But mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it wasn't like I was conditioned from childhood to get many degrees, but it was just it was something where it was like, oh, maybe you know I can g- go get a PhD but also you know phd's like 5 6 years you know it's yeah. a really long time and i think financially it didn't quite make sense and so i think industry was the was the only option at that point
1: yeah i mean a lot of our listeners face these questions right? should i get a like a masters i've done a bachelor should i get a masters uh and then i've done a masters should i get a phd should i get as you mentioned you know a, an mba degree so these um these thought processes um that um, that you go through, others go through in deciding, should I do this or should I just stay with the with the career path? These are very useful pieces of advice. So y- your thinking was just based on the time invested in the PhD? Is that the main...
0: Yeah, sorry? the time invested and also financially, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can support yourself through school and kind of go through that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the industry was... Was attractive. If I could do this all over again, I probably mm-hmm. would get a bachelor's in the United States and get a. I would have got an MBA. That mm-hmm. probably would have been an ideal path for me. When I do look back,
1: mm. why would that have been different?
0: For me, um, you know, getting a bachelor's degree in computer science would have been just ideal because that was kind of where I eventually went to. Right, so I went through this whole five years of chemistry and instrumentation and meandered through that. The most efficient would have been just getting a bachelor's degree in computer science. I've been a very, though I've been in engineering a lot, I'm very product focused, but I've never wanted to be a product manager. I've had several opportunities in my career to be a product manager, and that was not something that I wanted to do. Getting a business degree was something that was attractive to me. Not now. I think now I'm way past that, but um, you know, normally you know, get your bachelor's degree, probably two to three years of work experience. And then um, an MBA from like a school like Stanford or Harvard, I feel like that kind of really propels your career in a very different direction. And it's not the education you get. I think it's more the network that you build and Mm. the people you know.
1: Moving forward in your timeline, you finish your master's at UTR LinkedIn, and then you start um, uh, your move into industry. And over several years, you worked at several companies. I mentioned the names of some of the companies at the start of the episode. Was there certain characteristics you were looking for uh, in an industry job that made you switch? Or was it just, you know? The, a function of the projects that you were working on?
0: So initially when I started, I worked for Sabre American Airlines in Dallas. And that immediately in the first year of working there was like a nine to five job. Mm. You know, when you're in your 20s and you go into the workforce and you work with people who are married and have kids and you know <laughs> are pretty set in their careers. Um, it just felt like, this was the beginning of my career and it almost felt like it was the end of my career and it was like I knew I needed to do something different. So if you see, I just worked at startup companies after that. I took a big chance. You know, I left Texas. Uh, My sister actually moved to California, so that was another driving factor for me um, to move to California, which I think was um, a good decision and it was like the dot-com boom around that time. Um, And startup companies were fantastic because i spent a decade in startup companies yeah after saber yeah um which i think my second big company was vmware after that so that 10 years of working at startup companies really helped me um because i was young and i had a lot of energy and i wanted to learn so much um, and i wanted to be in dynamic environments Mm. Uh, but there were also hard environments to be in because startups, you know, with the dot-com bust that happened, you know, laying, getting laid off, losing your job. I mean, those were real things, right? And as an immigrant, it's much harder to lose your job in this country yeah. and not being an immigrant. But I took that risk all through uh, mm. for 10 years. I took that risk and I enjoyed, uh, you know, just working at startup companies, smaller companies, felt like I had more impact. I yeah. feel like I could move faster. Yeah,
1: yeah. because uh, as you mentioned, every time you change a job as an immigrant, you're, you're on a visa, you have to get your visa kind of recertified by your new employer. And there is some unpredictability with respect to that. So yeah, I've when I speak with uh, several immigrants, including my own former students, a lot of them say, well, you know, I would change my job except there is this immigration thing, <laughs> which I don't want to med- meddle with. So it, it takes quite a bit of, Courage and foresight and thinking to make those job those job jumps.
0: Yeah. Which, and so at one point, what I did was I said, you know what, this doesn't make sense. Like every time I have to switch jobs, I have to get recertified. So I worked for this consulting company that held my visa and I could go work at any company I wanted. Mm. So I worked at companies like Tell Me Networks, which was fantastic. They got bought by Microsoft. Um, that was such a fun experience for me. So I did a bunch of that when I was part of this consulting company that allowed me to have that freedom where I could do, go work at these different companies for short periods of time. It gave me that freedom to work when I wanted to and not work when I wanted to. So I, I felt like I did make some changes so I didn't have to be bound by those limitations. Mm-hmm.
1: So as you mentioned, you worked at VMware for um, around 12 years from 2008 to 2020. And before that, you worked in a variety of different companies. When you look for... Um, a work environment, uh, are there two or three things that you think characterize a very healthy work environment and then maybe two or three red flags? These might be helpful to our listeners who are you know, on the job market and looking for jobs.
0: I think that's taken me a long time to realize, you know, like VMware has been, um, I feel like that was a company where I grew up and the culture was was fantastic. I, I think the important thing for me was it was founded by a, a woman, Diane Green. And so I didn't see a lot of gender bias in, in the sense that, you know, I, I saw women at high senior positions for a long time. Um, and then the culture started changing a bit. And I think in 2016 was, you know, that's when it hit me that mm. there was uh, this this concept of inequality, um, you know, because I, I grew up with this notion of meritocracy and I thought that if I worked hard, good things would happen. (laughs) You know, just naive, right? Mm.
2: Um,
0: And I feel like every company lives up to the ideals of meritocracy. Like, I think it's good to live up to the ideals of it, but also know that it's a myth and it doesn't quite happen. But I think companies that I would say live up to that ideal of meritocracy is a good place to work.
2: Mm.
0: I would definitely... Uh, vote for that. And now that I work for companies, you know, like LinkedIn and Rivian, you know, very companies that are run by the younger generation, I feel like I'm much more um, more focused on culture and more focused Mm -hmm. on people. So those are all good things where you have a company that's focused on you, on the employee, Right, Um, especially with the pandemic now that, you know, physical health and mental health become such so forefront, Mm -hmm. it's helpful for companies to be able to encourage that and want that. Mm. Um, And I've seen that, you know, pretty much most of the tech companies I've worked at, they've been fantastic around that. Mm -hmm.
1: Would you say the the management and the um, setting of priorities in the companies uh, uh, being either top-down or being bottom-up from the employees, like you were mentioning, that has changed through the 2000s and 2010s as you were in industry all these years, or has that mix stayed more or less the same?
0: I'll tell you uh, my experience at VMware when I started as an engineer um, and why I actually got into management was... Because it was all um, bottoms-up, I felt like it was very grassroots,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which is kind of the companies I like to work in, where you're empowered. Um, and so my story with um, VMware was I started as an engineer, and um, because I worked at startup companies, and I had this mindset of customers and delighting customers, and literally customers were, you know, your bread and butter. <laughs> so yeah. when I started at VMware, I felt very disconnected from customers. Um, And I couldn't quite understand, you know, why engineers weren't talking to customers and why we didn't have that. And so I very organically started talking to customers and I found out all these pain points and I went to my VP. And this is a funny story because, you know, in large companies, you just can't walk into the VP's office, right? But when you work at startup companies, you know, your CEO is sitting like right next to you. <laughs> right. You know, when I worked at Tell Me Networks, Mike McHugh, the CEO, was next to me. And we like wrote code and we we deployed it over the weekend. And so I had access to people you think you can't have access to in bigger companies. And um, so at VMware, just going through these pain points, I walked into my VP's office and I said, hey, you know what? There's a problem statement. This is how we can fix it. What do you think? And he said, oh, this is great. Why don't you just build a team and build it out? And I was like, oh, my God, like, I'm an engineer, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't build teams. <laughs> this is not <laughs> what I do. But he really encouraged me, you know, um, mm-hmm. to go off. And he, like, really empowered me. And he gave me all the support. And he gave me a budget. And he said, you know, you can go. And and at that point, it was like even deciding a software development cycle. Agile was taking off at that point, And VMware was very waterfall Um, He allowed me to make certain decisions and he really empowered me. Um, And that actually helped me get into management because once I did that process and I went through that, that, you know, like you have a vision, you get people to rally behind it and you can actually build a team and you can execute on it. I think that propelled me into management. I would never have gotten into management if I didn't have that experience. So for me, I always like to work in environments where I can go from zero to one. And I can be empowered to go from zero to one. Mm-hmm. Those are the companies I like working in. I can't work in this top-down companies. I don't thrive really well.
1: And so in this experience of building your own team, your, the first team that you build, um, what were a couple of the difficult things early on? Was, was looking for the right people a challenge?
0: I think for me, influencing without authority was a challenge. <laughs> mm. You know how you have a title, you can walk in and you can influence people? Not when you're an engineer. And I was a junior engineer. I was this engineer who just started with the, at the company. And I had this idea to go do. And I had like principal engineers working with me. But the great thing about VMware was like people were so respectful. And see, this is why I didn't see that gender bias. Because I was yeah. a female, a young female who had a a problem statement that we wanted to solve for customers and i brought that in and they all rallied behind me right so when you have things like that happen to you you don't quite see that like it wasn't like my voice wasn't heard Hmm. but i think my challenge there was influencing without authority right but i also learned how to influence without authority which was great
1: how do you do that
0: it's a lot of data and facts right Hmm. Uh, like Coming up with a lot of data, I felt like as an engineer, especially, is uh, people get convinced when you have the data and facts to back up anything that you're trying to say. And I think that resonated with a lot of the male engineers I worked with, (laughs) which Uh were many of them. (laughs) I actually didn't have any female engineers. See, that's, you know, and even then I never noticed it. Uh Um, But very data driven. Uh
1: You're listening to an interview with Pratima Rao Gluckman, Senior Engineering Manager at Rivian, and immigrant from India. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientist's Podcast. So that's a good segue to talk about uh, the book itself, which you wrote, you published in in 2018, titled Nevertheless, She Persisted, True Stories of Women Leaders in Tech. And for that book, you interviewed several women technologists. Um, uh, What gave you the idea for the book itself?
0: So the idea came to me in 2016. I was probably six years into or eight years into my career at VMware. Mm-hmm. You know, until then, I felt like meritocracy kind of worked in my favor mm-hmm. or whatever meritocracy ideas I had in my head yeah. <laughs> kind of worked in my favor. And then I went to the networking group at VMware because I fell in love with software-defined um, networking.
1: SDN, Yes.
0: And I was very fascinated by that technology, so I wanted to learn more about it. So I decided to go work in this organization. I feel like that's when I realized that it was much harder to navigate the organization in terms of, um, you know, even if I wanted a promotion or I wanted strategic projects. um, It just didn't feel like I could navigate. And I didn't have a lot of support because it was just... A totally different arm of vmware where people were gotten from outside of vmware so they didn't quite have that vmware culture mm-hmm. and there were zero women in high mm-hmm. positions in that business unit which i think was very different from what i'd experienced before and so i was having lunch with one of my coworkers, and you know and i realized my peers were struggling as well and it's funny like we were talking about this and i think 2016 was a tough climate as well with you know the elections and there was so much going on during that time i think there was the uber scandal there was so many like you know there was so many moving parts you know around that time and it was funny i just talked to my friend and i said you know i'm just thinking that i need to go talk to i really need to talk because my life has been all about role models like the way i went to pilani was with you know with the role model and and I wanted some form of role models, and I didn't have those. And I said, you know, there are lots of successful women <laughs> that I'm not seeing, and so I should just go talk to them, and I should interview them. I think I said that, and, and I very flippantly said, you know, maybe I should just write a book on this. Uh-huh. It was just, it's a, it was a very flippant statement. And I, and yeah. the moment I said it, I was it's, it's like, I'm also a very spiritual person, And for me, it was like, you know, I was kind of telling the universe that this is what I wanted to do. And it was like the universe was telling me that I should do it. And I came home and I told my husband, those first person, and he said, oh, that's such an amazing idea. I'll support you in any way you want. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was the journey of it. That was kind of where I kind of made up my mind I was going to do it. I just didn't know how I was going to do it. I don't yeah. know what it meant to write a book. I knew nothing. But I also think about if I had... And my twins were two years, I think two or three years. They were very young. Yeah. But I would always think about this like, if, you know, if my husband said something different, and he said, oh, no, you know what? It's such a bad time for you to do this. You've got such a big job. And, you know, we going to be very young kids. Um, I have an older child with special needs as well. So we have a very... Um, it's not a very easy family that we're in you know like being a being parents of special need a child who needs a lot of care at home and have twins yes. who so young it was a very unique time but he was all encouragement he was like you should do it but if he had said no i probably wouldn't have right like mm. so it also depends and i always think about those times when people are not encouraged to go follow their dreams like Imagine there was so so much creativity in this world that we could have had.
1: Yeah, that's so beautifully put. How did you manage the time? As you mentioned, you had two young kids um, and a job and a career, a full-time job. And then on the side, you're starting to think of, you know, formulating this book and these interviews. How did you think you were going to manage time? And did that actually work out the way you thought it would?
0: You know, when I started off, I was ambitious. I, 2016, I said, I'll publish in 2017. Mm and i didn't know what it meant to do that i think it was just starting small it was like okay let's do that first interview in fact the first interview i did you know her book is not her her story is not in my book Hmm. but i actually interviewed 25 women i got 19 stories in there i think Hmm. the first step was just trying to interview these women and get on their calendars and the first step was who i wanted to interview Yeah. yeah right um, so there was a lot of that background work that I needed to do. Right. Um, and what the funny thing with this was, um, doing and writing the book gave me so much energy that helped with my work. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. And this is what I also encourage my team, like, you know, my team of engineers, I'm always telling them to think about other things that they can do that gives them a lot of energy and, you know, that vitality that they can actually bring into their regular jobs right because there's going to be ups and downs with what you do at work because you're doing that day in day out how do you keep yourself motivated right and i think this other side that i was pursuing helped you know my professional life and it also helped my personal life too because i felt like The times I had with my kids, I was much more present with them because I knew it was very limited. Mm.
1: That's an interesting idea. The the fact that sometimes we think of time management or the 24 hours in a day as um, that's all there is. And we think of time management as a zero sum game. I take one hour away from this. I have to give one hour to this. But I guess what I'm learning from what you're saying is that sometimes you do an extra thing, it gives you energy for the things you're already doing.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely.
1: Interesting. And this is especially useful because often in the tech field, uh, I've seen this with grad students and also in industry, we get so wrapped up in our work that we barely get time for other things. And when I talk with people, hey, do you have hobbies? Do you have other things? They're like, "Eh, no, not really. You know, this job is all there is. and, And they're not even willing to think of something small apart from, you know, watching Netflix and chilling.
0: Yeah. And the way I met my husband was also, you know, doing something outside of my job. Mm. You know, when you're single and you work at startup companies, you know, you don't tend to have a life. But I think the way I always led my life was I always did things outside of my work. So I, you know, when I was at startup companies, I ran a lot of marathons and that gave me a high. It helped my pers- my professional life. You know, I learned different languages. I played different instruments. You know, I was always learning on this side. And the way I met my husband was I wanted to teach music to kids. And so I did something called music for minors and he's a musician, he was there. That's how I met him. But I've always done something outside of my professional life. All through, you know, it's never ever been I think the pandemic, it's a different story. (laughs) Like a lot of things I can do outside of these four walls in some sense, which is kind of sad, but that's kind of how it's always been for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What what musical instruments do you play and does your husband play?
0: So he, I'm not a musician. I'm a wannabe musician. I'm always learning to, (laughs) you know, so I dabble a little bit with the piano and, you know, um, the guitar. Those were like the two instruments. Uh, but my husband plays the xylophone. He's actually a jazz oh, musician. Nice. I always joke oh, nice. that people yeah. pay to listen to him, and I have to pay people to listen to me. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: That's very interesting. So, returning to your book, you mentioned having make you know making the list of who you wanted to talk with. How did you go about that? What was your thinking in selecting the twenty-five women that you spoke with?
0: I started off with VMware. I looked at all the women at VMware and I said, okay, who are these successful women? Um, and VMware has this yearly conference called Radio, which is an innovation conference. And so I you know, made sure to talk to a lot of the women in that okay. setting. Um, so that was the first thing that I did. And I used some of these women to introduce me to other women. So that was like another way of networking. Um, and then I would go to women conferences and I would listen to a lot of these speakers and I would identify the women that I really wanted to speak to. And uh, LinkedIn was my friend. It's funny that I actually went and worked for them. Uh, it's an amazing social platform. Um, and so I would go there and say, okay, who's connected to this person that I want to talk to. And then I would talk to that person and see if I could get an introduction. So it was just things like that where I just, you know, either stumbled upon women because they were introduced to me by other women, or I stumbled upon them at conferences. And um, This other thing I'll tell you is the woman who wrote my foreword, Mm. Danielle, she... um, I think um, Ariana Huffington once tweeted about her or tagged her in some post. And I looked at her, Daniel Feinberg, and I looked at her profile and she worked at Pixar and she did lighting for Toy Story and, you know, um, she did lighting for all the Pixar movies. And I was so fascinated by her. And I sent her an email and I said, I'm writing this book. Are you willing to read it and write a forward for it? She wrote back right away, like in two hours. And I was so excited. And she said, I'm happy to do it for you. Um, and she actually wrote the foreword when she was invited to Bitspilani. Mm. And she was in Rajasthan. She was on a train. You oh, know wow. that Rajasthan train? Yeah. Um, and she said the sun was rising and she was writing my forward, And she was like, she said, I can't believe I'm doing this. Like mm. she couldn't believe that she was writing a forward for this woman. And we've never met this yeah. woman. She's never met. And she read my book, you know, because I, you know, she was writing a 4 so she had to read my book. And she was writing it on the screen, and she said she was so inspired while she was writing that. So it was just very um, strange how I met some of the women and how they're still a part of my life and how, you know, they're kind of like mentors as well.
1: That is such a beautiful and serendipitous um event that she's writing this forward going to your alma mater in india
0: (laughs) and she sent me pictures too it was just fascinating it was just um so bizarre and it had to be with ariana huffington tagging her in some post like i would not have known right Mm -hmm. and she does amazing work she does lighting for all these movies
1: in the process of doing the interviews and writing the book what would you say was the biggest challenge or the hardest obstacle
0: that you faced Oh, God, there were plenty. Um, I mean, I'm a geek. (laughs) I'm not, you know, I'm not a prolific writer. You know, it's like grammar and, you know, things like that was not my strength. Um, So I fired a lot of editors that Mm -hmm. I had hired to do my book. And I actually talk about it as well. So if you see my acknowledgements, I went through so many editors and then I finally found this editor who's fantastic and um, she really helped me think about how I wanted to tell some of the stories and how I wanted to portray and bring myself out also in some of the stories. So it was really a pleasure to work with her and I think once I found her and this was through a a VMware colleague whose wife was an editor and then she introduced me to This woman, her name's Pim. And the funny story with her is, you know, she's in her 60s. And after she wrote my book, she went to work for Microsoft. Um, And she never, ever thought that she would go back in tech and be a technical writer. Mm -hmm. So it's fascinating how, you know, the process of writing that book and really internalizing the stories actually helped her go back and find that strength and that courage to go back and do something. Um, So I think that was hard. But I think once I found her... The second thing was publishing. I had no idea how I wanted to publish. It was self publish not self publish So that was that. I think the other thing was, you know, I also didn't know, you know, as a woman of color, who's an immigrant in this country, who's pretty much a nobody, like who would want to read this book or who would want to listen to these stories, you know?
1: Who's your audience, right?
0: Who's Who's your audience? You know, you kind of go through a lot of that imposter syndrome. Who would want to listen to you and things like that right and then the fourth thing is i didn't know like after publishing the book what do you do with it (laughs)
2: Mm, mm -hmm.
0: you know like people talk about tours you do and these author tours and book tours i didn't do any of that i just spoke at companies um, Mm. and that was also the woman in the book telly whitney was the one who gave me that idea she said hey why don't we go on a roadshow with your book and do talks and so she and a couple other women in the book kind of went with me and and we met at Grace Hopper and you saw the, the yeah. panel of women, the women in yeah. the book. That's pretty much what we did is we went to companies like Uber and Facebook and Google and, you know, all these tech companies as a group of women and we would just go talk. Mm. That's kind of how, you know, we promoted the book and it wasn't like I did major promotion either. Yeah. Um, it was never, because I just didn't know. I don't, I don't know if I'll even do that with, you know, if if there's another book that I want to publish, like, maybe I'll do things differently, but never did major promotions of it. It was just so word of mouth. And um, I don't know how you chanced upon it. But it just was, everything was so organic. Yeah, yeah.
1: You you mentioned imposter syndrome. Do you have a, a thought process philosophy for handling it when it hits you?
0: Uh, I do. I think through the book, I learned that. Um, I think it was uh, Telly Whitney who helped me through that. She's the um, founder of Grace Hopper. So she started Grace Hopper with, um, gosh, I'm totally forgetting. Um, So anyway, Dr. Telly Whitney, she's, you know, founded Grace Hopper and I was sitting and I was interviewing her, you know, it was like a Friday afternoon having coffee in downtown Saratoga. And I asked her, do you have imposter syndrome? And I actually was, I thought she'd say, no, I don't have it. And Mm -hmm. she said, I do. And she said, I have it every day. Mm -hmm. Um, And I said, how do you get over it? And she said, I just show up, you know, every day. And I think that helped me because while I was writing the book, I was having so much imposter syndrome and it was just showing up.
1: And doing the next thing.
0: Doing the next thing, right? You know, even if it was writing 15 minutes in a day, um, taking an hour break. I, I, d- I wrote a lot over the weekend, so it was time away from family, and I wrote best when I was sitting in in Pete's coffee, like mm-hmm. down the street from my house, and yeah. I don't have that access anymore with COVID.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I felt like I was much more creative with noise around me and just my thoughts and music and just the bustling of people where I could just sit and... You know become zen-like at any point and so i think um just showing up doing everything little by little you know every day yeah. or every other day and you know you fall off the wagon you get back on it you know
2: yeah yeah
0: mm-hmm.
1: You're listening to an interview with Pratima Rao Gluckman, Senior Engineering Manager at Rivian and immigrant from India. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast. Mm-hmm. I want to ask about some of the other themes that appear in your uh, book. Um, and I won't name any guests, I'll just mention the themes. And uh, I just want to hear your thoughts on it or things that you have heard through the interviews. Uh, the first thing I want to ask about is negotiating for oneself. Negotiating for salaries, resources at a job or a new position, is uh, is always hard. It's uh, particularly hard for women in tech. Um, are, are there good strategies that women in tech uh, should uh, adopt or think about as they're negotiating?
0: Yeah, negotiations are a hard hard thing. I struggle with it too. My first job when I negotiated. I use my brother-in-law to help me negotiate. The guy really was my best friend, and also he married my sister as so well. Mm. He helped me negotiate. I think the 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 technique with negotiating is knowing that you know if it doesn't work out, you have to walk away from it. And I think that's the hardest part. And people are afraid to negotiate because they're afraid to walk away from it. But if you can tell yourself, you know what. I'll negotiate, and if they don't meet me, I can walk away from it. I think that allows you to have a good negotiation strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing is have leverage. I think the first thing is you have to have leverage to be able to walk away from it. So I feel like those are the two things. And for women, it's especially hard because it's really hard for us to advocate for for ourselves. Right. Um, we can advocate for others. So if someone comes to me and they say, you know what, I want to negotiate, um, I'm always telling them, you know, you can do this and that and stuff. But when it comes to me, I, I freeze, I struggle with it. It's, 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 it's a struggle for me.
1: How do you navigate that? Do you think of yourself in the third person? Is that a strategy?
0: Um, I think the way I navigate that is I look at all the times I didn't negotiate for myself. I try to do better on the next time, mm. right? And it might not be the best, but at least it's better than my last one. And I think mm. that's how I know I'm progressing.
1: The next theme I want to ask about is uh, something that you mentioned before, which is projecting confidence without um, without being authoritarian or without showing too much authority. Um, th- I was reading this very interesting book by um, Alice Eagley and Linda Carley, Through the Labyrinth, The Truth About How Women Become Leaders. And there there's this discussion of uh, men being agentic, women being communal, and it going kind of against uh, the grain. Um it, uh, have you seen others approach this act of balancing this projection with the right amount of confidence without looking aggressive?
0: Yeah, you know, I also talk about uh, into the labyrinth in my book because I read that book and you know there was there was so many things that was like such a it was really eye opening for me. But what I feel is that I think in the last couple of years we have changed the n- narrative to be bring your authentic self to work. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that has uh, kind of taken that balance away, right? Like, you don't need to have that balance of, am I aggressive? Am I too nice? Or do I have to be a certain way? I think people are basically saying, if you're authentic, you bring your authentic self to work. It shouldn't, all that stuff shouldn't matter. And I don't know how well being authentic works for women, but what I'm seeing is that it's working fine only because men are bringing their authentic selves to work. Mm-hmm. It almost feels like when men can normalize something, it gets easier for the women. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I've seen that, and I'm seeing a lot of male leaders be very authentic in their leadership. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing a lot more authentic leadership with, with men. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is normalizing it for women. That's, I feel like that's my theory. I don't think, and we've been pushing for authenticity and and that's something that women have always brought to the table is authentic leadership. And that's where that, it becomes a double-edged sword. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But I think now that we're seeing more men be much more vulnerable in their leadership Mm. or much more authentic in their leadership, I feel like it's normalizing it for women and I feel like it's getting much better now. And also, I think we're talking about it and we're speaking about it. Uh, For instance, I'm always being told I'm aggressive sometimes and I always say, no, I'm assertive. Mm. So I always try to change the narrative and then people are much more open to listening to that.
1: What is the difference between being assertive and aggressive?
0: Um, if you look at the dictionary word for aggression, it's like it's like someone's coming after you and making you feel really bad or attacking you. That's aggression, right? Uh, being assertive is you know believing in something and actually voicing that um, belief. Mm right, is being assertive and being aggressive is more like coming after you and attacking you and uh, personally attacking you or things like that, right? So when women tend to be assertive and they speak up and they want their voice to be heard and they disagree, right? It may not be they're not attacking you or they're not doing anything of that sort. They're just being assertive. But I think that behavior is assumed as aggressive and so people Mm. confuse the two they actually are saying assertive but they're using a wrong word to describe that behavior right Right. um and i think in some cultures it's okay because i think like i felt like in like the indian culture being aggressive means like you're a go-getter and it's almost like a positive thing right but i feel like in the american culture it's not american culture it's not so making that distinction and really educating people i feel like is helping
1: what cues do you take or what times do you say, okay, now I need to go and have this conversation with this person and make this distinction clear to them? Do you do it like in a meeting when someone says something and you feel, oh, this person doesn't understand the difference between assertiveness and aggressiveness? Or do you do it like out of band, outside the meeting? How do you go about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you know, if you're singling someone out, you, it's best to do it privately in, you know, face-to-face um, and not make it personal right? Um, and so have that conversation around that. So I will call, call that out, but I do it privately and respectfully you know, on the side. Recently, I was in some meeting a couple of years ago, and there was a conversation on mentorship a lot, um, especially for women. And I actually strongly feel that women are over-mentored and under-sponsored. And so I really want women to get more sponsors than mentors. And so it was a group of men who were having this conversation about mentoring. And so I, I brought up this conversation about sponsorship. And so I did it in a broader group uh, because I wanted all of them to hear it. So, you know, mm-hmm. at that point, I kind of raised awareness around that. Mm-hmm.
1: That's interesting. You said women are over-mentored and under-sponsored. Uh, w- what is the difference between being a sponsor and being a mentor?
0: So I always say, like, mentors talk to you and sponsors talk about you. Um, And you want people to talk about you and advocate for you, right? Um, And so we found that women tend to get a lot of mentors who are not sponsors and men tend to get a lot of mentors who are sponsors. And so there's a Harvard study where they found that women don't get promoted as often because they don't have enough sponsorship opportunities within companies, which is true. Um, I've seen that in my own career. And I've seen women who are successful have multiple sponsors, Sort
1: of relatedly, another theme that I observed in the book was um, uh, as women take on more responsibility, they get promoted as well. Uh, and one of the themes I observed is the theme of asking for promotion before taking on more responsibility. Is this uh, is this something that you remember from your interviews? And the reason I asked is because um, one of the themes that emerged as I was reading some of the stories is that Women tend to, because they have to, as you mentioned earlier, have to uh, overperform and outperform some of the men to get some of the same uh, prizes, essentially. They, they tend to do a lot more than their current designation um, requires them to. But then they don't necessarily get promoted because they're already doing things that at, at the lower pay.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I think it's also because majority of women tend not to advocate for themselves, right? Like they're doing that work. So if you look, you know, Google or run some numbers as to how much unpaid work women do today mm. and how much money women who do unpaid work lose per year, it's it's average is hundred and fifteen or $120,000 a year. So there's a lot of unpaid work that we do and there's a lot of work that we don't get credited for. And yeah. we just, it's just assumed that because of your gender, you know, Right. that's what you know you do you do and but i think that's because we also don't talk about it right like we don't yeah. advocate for it talk about it make a big deal of it
1: yeah and they're not the sponsors are also knowing not doing their work right
0: Right. But I think to get sponsors, I've also seen that there's two ways to get sponsors. One is be good at what you do. Two is actually talk about it.
1: Should women ask someone explicitly to be their sponsor or how how does one ask?
0: Yeah, you, it's not easy to just, you can't, so the thing is, if you walk to someone and say, be my sponsor, they'll be like, uh, for right. you have to maybe educate them for an hour what a right. sponsor means. Um, and a lot of men have been sponsors unknowingly. A lot of the women in my book who have been successful have had sponsors, and I don't think any of them know that they're sponsors. In fact, my sponsor, who actually got me into management, I gave him a copy of my book, and I, and I signed it, and I said, thank you for being my sponsor. And he, when he opened the book and he read that, he said, oh, I didn't realize I was your sponsor. So it's it's very hard to actually go and ask someone for being a sponsor, but I think the way you can get a sponsor is be really, really good at what you do. Right. Yeah. And then talk about it. Like you have to showcase it. Yeah. Um, and that's how they recognize you.
1: Um, I have two or three more questions left. Uh, my next question is about, uh, I asked earlier about imposter syndrome. I want to ask about a different side of the coin, which is uh, handling failures and rejections. All of us face failures and rejections in our life. Uh, what is your philosophy towards approaching failures and rejections?
0: It's interesting, with failures and rejections. I feel like they're so important for your growth. Just imagine a world where you were only successful.
2: Yeah.
0: I think that would just be so boring, like literally.
1: Where where you're always winning? As
0: well. You're always winning. I mean, <laughs> oh, you know. I mean, how does how do you grow with that, right? And uh, failures are so important, so critical for your growth in so many ways. And I think it brings in so much creativity and so much innovation. You know, just not in your life, but in other people's lives, right? Mm. Even with this pandemic, it's been so tough, but there's been so much. We've had failures, but we've also had successes and we're always striving to be successful, but we're also failing miserably as we go mm-hmm. along, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important for us to have those failures um, because it really helps you get that growth mindset.
1: So when you face a failure or rejection in your personal or, or professional life, is your, is your thinking, well, you know, this is just part of the process. Let me just move on.
0: Oh yeah, it's just part of the process. You know, I'll, for me, I'll tell you when I try to quit VMware and been there for 11 10 11 years, mm. you know, you're out of the job market and you know, it's job market's like dating, right? Like trying yeah. to find another prospective yeah. employer and um you might get one offer but you probably fail like nine companies, <laughs> right? Interviews. Right. right, you have to go kiss so many frogs to find your prince, right? And uh but if you don't do that, And you don't fail. I felt like just when I came out and I said I wanted to go find another job and it was a very scary time for me because, you know, not in the job market, you know, the world kind of moved on and I was in the enterprise space and I interviewed tons and I failed tons of interviews, but I felt like I learned so much and I got better and better and better and better. And then finally, you know, the companies I found were like the best companies that you know, I wanted and they wanted and, you know, and, uh, and I, and this is what I tell women too. Like I interview tons of women who have probably been with the same company for a long time, even men, right. They're afraid to kind of go out and find that job or that thing. And, you know, they'll go interview one or two places and they fail and they just give up. And they say, you know what, I'll just stay with this boring job and suffer through it. Right. But I feel like that, Those failures really help.
1: Uh, I want to ask a question about um, gender fluidity and gender-free roles in the family and also, I guess, in the workplace, but largely in the family. I think you and your husband, you have spoken about this a bit, have um, um, quite a bit of a gender-free distribution of responsibilities to some extent, and and you have talked about how that's helped your career. Do you think that is the way in which uh, we... um, I guess, incentivize or make the path for young girls to make it into STEM and into engineering in the future, just having gender-free roles? Uh, or are you, are you more of the viewpoint that traditional families are also okay and that's fine too?
0: You know, that's a hard one um, for me because it's been very fluid in my life. You know having my husband be a stay-at-home dad for many years actually now yeah. he's going he's actually working full-time outside the home yeah. which is interesting for me because now I have to be a parent to my kids <laughs>
2: <laughs> which is
0: a big challenge yeah. I think I was lucky that way in some sense but I also think that the partner you pick is very important for your career especially for young women and uh, it's important that you pick somebody who's going to support you
1: yeah, this is an advice that I, I heard um, a couple of women say at the Grace Hopper conference that, that you and I were at in 2019, and then I've heard it a couple of times, and I've heard people protesting against it as well, which is the following statement, that I've heard women say, um, choosing the right partner is really important to your career, uh, and and it's true. The amount of support they provide is very important. At the same time, uh, it flies kind of against this philosophy of what does my personal life have to do with my career? I should be able to advance my career without having it depend on my personal life. Uh, Do you find those two contradictory or are they kind of... I
0: can't imagine how you would progress in your career if you you didn't have the support in your personal life. Beats me. If somebody has figured that out, I'd like to hear. (laughs) You know, they're intertwined in a weird way, Right
1: yeah speaking of gender fluidity do you would you say when you were young when you were a child you observed that in your family among your mother and father or was it a more traditional family
0: um my family was weird i mean they were traditional family you know i saw the women in the kitchen all the time and i think that's kind of where i told myself at a very young age that i wasn't going to be that person right like I feel like the women in my family—not my mom—but you know, like I grew up in a in a joint family where you know I grew up with my cousins and things like that. Where mm-hmm. the women would wake up, you know, breakfast, and then it was lunch and dinner, and that's it was like Groundhog Day every day, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so I knew very early on that's not what I wanted to do. So I didn't grow up. You know, and I talk about this in my book too. My mom was very ambitious. She wanted a life of her own. But my my dad really stopped her from doing a lot of those things because he was a very traditional guy. At that mm-hmm. time, you know, the man goes to work, the woman stays home with the kids. And, you know, I'm the youngest of four kids. And so my mom made some choices. But she was very unhappy, mm-hmm. extremely unhappy during that process. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't present with the kids because she was so unhappy. She was ambitious. She wanted to go out. She wanted to do stuff. But my dad never let her do it. Mm. so I saw that I saw that theme of unhappiness with my mom and I saw a lot of women just also unhappy stuck with you know just cooking all day and right. feeding families right like that was their value right
2: right um right.
0: and I think growing up traditionally actually helped me I felt mm. because I wanted to break out of that
1: uh last question very open-ended uh, is there anything else we didn't cover that you wanted to talk about
0: I think one thing maybe is just how COVID has impacted women um, in terms of how the burden is on women a lot more, I feel. Taking care of kids, taking care of older people and uh, not having that support. And I was was just watching something which was kind of sad, was in South Africa, how many young women were getting pregnant like in their teenage years because they're now stuck at home in abusive families and Mm. um the pandemic has really has closed off that 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 space where like they could you know run away from home or go somewhere or do something right Right. so i feel like you know in the united states and you know richer countries were maybe blessed but i think in the poor poorer countries i think women are really struggling with the pandemic it this pandemic is going to have such a huge impact Um, and there's also a lot of women who are also you know mental health who are actually killing themselves there's, right. you know, there's lots happening right now and there's so many celebrity women who are having mental health problems. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: So I think this, it worries me. I think the impact of the pandemic is going to be pretty big and I I don't know how we're going to come out at the end of it.
1: Yeah, and even in, even in the US, I think it's been um, hard on uh, parents, women who are parents and have to take care of kids at home also have to work and you know do all the other things that are necessary at home and i've heard um, i've heard discussions that e- even after covid subsides in the post pandemic world because now it's just easier to work at home that's kind of the way a lot of the industry is going to be if not all of it uh, just because it's a more comfortable thing but that that's a very hard uh, situation for women to remain in where they have to take care of a lot of things at home at the same time, plus also have a career and create a career.
0: Yeah, I feel like if you ask me what's been the hardest thing through my entire life, I think just navigating through the pandemic has been the hardest for me. I have uh, I, I've, I think I've, I'm a much different person than I was pre-COVID. Just
1: internally, um, are there specific things you can point to that are different?
0: Yeah, I mean, I was a very things? people person. I drew a lot of energy being with people. You know, I love traveling, being on stage, being, talking to people. I think the pandemic has caused a lot of anxiety in terms of now, you know, when I'm around people, I'm anxious. (laughs) You know, so there's um, there's that shift that has happened. um, And I see that in myself, which is kind of sad because you take somebody who gets life from other people who's now just feels this fearful of it, right? So... It yeah, has yeah. had a huge impact on me as a person, and I'm a lot different than I was pre pandemic right now.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, here's to hoping that in the post pandemic world, we all are able to reclaim some part of ourselves, um, at least the positive side. I, know, I,
0: I, I've, I hope it's like muscle memory and it'll come back to me. Yeah. It'll take some time, yeah. I'll be rusty, and then I'll be back.
1: Well, uh, thank you, Pratima, for sharing your journey and your experiences and your thoughts with us. Thank you for coming on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I hope you enjoyed that episode. This is the third and last episode of the show's segment on India. If you haven't already done so, you can listen to our previous two episodes featuring technologists who graduated from IIT Madras or IIT Chennai in India in 1998 as they look back and discuss their immigration journey over 23 years. Those two episodes were recorded uh, in a real live room with all of us present in the same room. Next week, we start a completely new segment featuring top technologists from a new country. The guests on that upcoming segment include a Godel Prize winner, a MacArthur Fellowship winner, also known as a Genius Grant, who is also a cancer survivor, and a technologist ranked by Business Insider as number four on the list of 22 most powerful women engineers in the world. And they all immigrated from the same country, which itself has a very long history that uh, we will discuss on those episodes. Coming next week, stay tuned. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. And you can find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. All the music used in episodes of the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast is royalty-free. All voice recordings were performed with and are reproduced with full consent of narrators and participants. You can find music credits on our website. Join the online discussion about this podcast on all major social media, including Twitter and Facebook, with the handle Immigrant and hashtag CSImmigrant. And of course, the episode guide is available at our website, csimmigrant.org. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast.